Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today I want to talk about influence, and I have one question for you as a starter. Whoever has enough influence? So if you ever wonder why some people seem to have a lot more than others, well, that's what we're going to talk about. And by the way, have you ever thought about who influences you and why? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're also going to talk about why it is that some ideas seem to get accepted from some people and they don't get accepted from other people. So we're going to talk about why we listen to who we listen to and why we ignore others. My guest today is Steve Martin. He's a behavioral scientist and Royal Society nominated author in the field of influence and persuasion. And he's the co-author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Yes, 50 Secrets from the Science of Persuasion, but his most recent book, co-authored with Joseph Marx, is Messengers, Who We Listen to, Who We Don't, and Why, and it's this latter one that I particularly want to focus on. Now, Steve has been applying influence and persuasion science to business and public policy, and he's been featured in every place you would want to be featured, New York Times, BBC TV and Radio, Washington Post, Financial Times, Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review. I don't know that there's more, but I'm sure Steve has been there. He's also a visiting professor of behavioral science at Columbia University Graduate School and a guest lecturer on the MBA and the senior executive programs at London School of Economics, at the London Business School, and at Harvard. And if that's not enough, he's CEO of Influence at Work UK. Steve, welcome to the show. Well, it's lovely to be here, Wanda. Thank you very much indeed for the invitation. It's a pleasure. And I am super excited about this because I just think it's like an important ingredient for this whole thing of how do we have influence. But one of the places I like to start with each of my guests is sort of what got you started on this work. And what I'm most interested in is what was the question or the challenge that you were trying to understand? Yeah, well, I'd like to be able to start, Wanda, by recounting a grand plan that I had to become, you know, someone that worked in the influence sciences, and it was, you know, my destiny to do what I'm currently doing. But that's just not the case. Um, I was fortunate enough to just have a remarkable set of circumstances and, and good luck before me. I, 20 years ago, was working for a big corporate organization, a big global healthcare company, and our sales teams were interested in how we could be a little bit more influential, a little bit more persuasive. And I I happened upon one of the world's, perhaps the world's most uh, noted expert in persuasion research, Bob Cialdini, a social psychologist from Arizona State University. And, um, you know, I just kind of picked up the phone to him and said, hey, look, you know, is there a way we might be able to use some of your insights in our organization? And that was a a phone call that, you know, proved to be defining in terms of my career just over 20 years ago. And, um, yeah, subsequently it led me to leave the organization and start out on this journey working with Bob, uh, an incredible mentor and tutor, and then subsequently branching out and doing my own research. So, But it was a piece of good fortune, Wanda, um, that, that got me set. 
Um, I don't always ask that question exactly that way on this show, but I will tell you that I ask it of the senior executives that I talk to all the time, and I can think of two occasions over decades where people have said it was part of a grand plan. It's an interesting statement. We all think you had a grand plan because it looks like it worked out so well, and then rarely any of us do. It just kind of evolves. So... What is it that attracts you to this question of influence? Kind of like, what's your burning question? Well, I think it's a question that a lot of us have, which is all of us would like to be heard more, taken a little more seriously, have our ideas, our proposals, you know, listened to a little bit more carefully and not just dismissed. And one of the things that I found really interesting about that is is that Sometimes it's not necessarily the idea or the content of what you're presenting that has its impact on people. Sometimes it's the timing or the way it's presented or sometimes who presents it. So often it's not the merits of the case, the information or the incentive perhaps that you know is likely to move people. It's something entirely different. And that's fascinating to me because I think we often miss those invisible, undernoticed, but once you expose them, rather obvious aspects of the influence process. So understanding them and then using them in, you know, effective and importantly, ethical and sustainable ways, we can start to, you know, arrange for all sorts of change uh, to occur. People listen to us more, you know, seriously. They, They take on board our ideas. And, you know, I think all of us in some form or other want to be heard a little more often. So that's fascinating and, and valuable to me, I think. I think it's hugely important. I'd like a little more influence. Now, who wouldn't want any more influence or to be heard more often or to be taken a little more seriously? All right, so let's pick up on that idea. I get this complaint all the time that routinely someone will say, I say the idea and I don't get any attention for that idea. But then someone else says it and immediately everybody think it's the greatest thing and don't even remember that it originally came from me anyway. So why is that <laughs> happening in your view? And more importantly, what's missing that kids credit going to the wrong places? Yeah, do you know that, I mean, I can't, Remember, I, I wouldn't even like to count the number of people that have either read about influence or read the latest book or messages. And, and that's their go-to example. They say, you know, how is it that I can go to work and, you know, I, you know, present an idea. Maybe it might be an idea for how we can work a little bit more effectively or that a little bit more productively, you know, saves time, makes work a little bit better, more tolerable a place to be in. And, you know, my idea falls on deaf ears. You know, people just look at me as if I'm crazy and go, ah, that's not going to work. Yet someone else can come along, say the exact same thing, and then that exact same idea that was roundly rejected is suddenly enthusiastically embraced. And I think, Wanda, part of the reason for that is it's not just what's being said that matters. In fact, you know, Joe and I, in the course of these last three years of research, we actually go so far to say that increasingly, it's not what's being said that matters, it's who's saying it. And and so therefore, when we seek to kind of get a message heard or when we are looking to, you know, influence or persuade someone, I think we spend too much time and energy thinking about what we're going to say and perhaps not enough focused on who is the right person, the, the most productive person to deliver that message because those two things aren't always the same. Just because you've come up with the idea 
doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best person to deliver it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm reminded of parents, savvy parents wonder, no, that if they want their son to, you know, their 15 or 16 year old son to study harder, do his homework, they're the worst messengers in the world to deliver that message. Much better to get the, you know, the cute 15 year old girl from next door to deliver that message. All of a sudden, of course, he's going to comply. So, you know, there's a really good example um, of how sometimes it's not just what we're saying that's important that we should pay attention to, but, in, but increasingly, we need to think about who that messenger is. Yeah, tell me about that with kids. And if we just took our insight <laughs> about trying to get our kids or our partner, for that matter, um, to listen to us and to do what we're saying and to be influenced by us, we'd probably recognize that it's even that much harder in our work lives. So what is it about the messenger that we need to be paying attention to. I guess what I'm asking is, how do we know who's the right person to deliver the message? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think, and, and for context, what we need to be thinking about here is this really important dynamic that takes place, Wanda, which is when, when someone delivers a message, the audience that's receiving that message, they kind of connect the message and the messenger together in their minds. And they start to make all sorts of associations and inferences about that particular messenger. And what we've done, Joe and I, over the course of these last three years is to look at some close to seven decades of research that, to one of its purposes, curates what are the most productive or what are the universal ways to get heard. And we found that there are eight universal ways to get heard or eight messenger traits that people are most likely to pay attention to. And interestingly, Wanda, what they do is they, they pick up on these traits often before the message is even delivered. And so what we are suggesting here is if you want to be a more productive messenger, if you want to perhaps increase your influence and your persuasion and to do so in an entirely ethical and effective way, you can Think about who might be or what might be the most productive messenger trait to pull on in that moment before you deliver a message. Um, so that's what we find. That's what we talk about in the book, these eight universal ways to get heard. And, and they're not guesses. They're not hunches. They're not things that, you know, Joe and I kind of made up in a bar the other day. Um, they are steeped in research and science. So we can be, you know, comfortable. We can be confident in their robustness. Okay. All right. So eight traits. I'm going to ask you first what those are. And then I want to go back and say, well, how do I know which one for which audience on which occasion? So give us the eight types or traits, I think you say. Okay. Yeah, eight traits. So there are, there are eight universal ways in which we can get heard. And, and we divide these into two types of messenger. We have hard messengers and we have soft messengers. Hard messengers are those individuals or those entities, those communicators that seek to signal to their audience that they have some form of status. Because I have this status over you, that demands attention and you should listen to what I'm saying. And the way in which they do that is they can signal their socioeconomic position, so how rich and famous they are or how accomplished in society they are. They can signal their competence, so how experienced, how expert they are. They can signal their dominance, so simply they just you know, point out or communicate how dominant they are, you know, the, the kind of people that you know, think that 
to life, everything is a competition and to the victor goes the spoil. So there's the dominant messenger. And finally, in these hard traits, we have the attractive messenger, the, you know, those messengers that communicate a sense of attractiveness about themselves. And as a result, we listen to them more, obviously akin to advertising, those kind of things. So those are the four hard traits. But in contrast, we also have four soft traits. These are the messengers that don't try to get ahead of their audience, Wanda. What they do is they they seek to communicate that they want to get along with their audience. They're connected to them. And they do that through uh, their warmth or by signaling a vulnerability or by communicating their trustworthiness or by demonstrating their charisma. So those are the eight, four hard, four soft. And it's not that we are just one type or another. You know, we use these at different times, but it's certainly the case that in certain contexts, audiences will look out and react more favorably to one or more of these traits than others. So is there a preference? Like there's a bunch that's being written at the moment about dominance. Let's take that one as an example. Um, People who say that everything is a competition and I want to win, that kind of dominance, I'm going to be on top regardless. We, there is a right. sense of the power that's communicated from that. I want to be on a winning team. But there's a lot being said at the moment about how that's ineffective. Okay, so are all eight of these equally effective or is it a horses for courses kind of thing? I think it is the latter. Wonder is, it's, in fact, not so much horses for courses. I think it's context matters and directs the course of an audience's attention. So let's take those dominant messengers, for example, because you're, you're exactly right. When you think about them, you know, these people that are dispositionally dominant, that think that life is a competition, that, you know, I win, you lose. And in this kind of modern-day contemporary society, you'd like to think that there's absolutely no place for individuals like that, certainly in our workplaces. But the fact is there are certain circumstances when we seek out dominant messengers, when we are likely to be more inclined to listen to them and to follow them. And one of those circumstances is when there's anxiety or uncertainty. You know, that's the kind of context where we look outside of ourselves and say, right, well, who's in charge here? What does the dominant leader say we should do? And we're more inclined in those instances to follow them. And in fact, this is not just speculation. There are good studies, not just in political science, which we can maybe talk about, but in the workplace as well. We found studies that show that recruiters, you know, boards of directors that are recruiting an executive member to an organization are much more inclined to recruit a dominant candidate, one that has that win-at-all-costs kind of mentality. If the company is in some sort of distress or trouble, if there's no clear strategy to the direction it's taking, perhaps there's low levels of psychological safety in the organization, we find that those recruiters are much, much more likely to appoint a dominant type of executive in that instance. Yet by contrast, if things are going well, if there's a clear strategy that organization is following, if there are you know, high levels of psychological safety, you know, everyone is clear about what their role and their job is. And, and you know, there's, you know, you know the, the, the organization is doing well. Those same recruiters in that instance will be much more likely to recruit a connected, warmer, benevolent type of leader in that instance. So there's an example of how the context or the situation that an organization or an environment finds itself in 
can be an important determinant of who we look to and, and who we're likely to listen to in that instance. Okay. That, you know, in an odd way, it makes a lot of sense to me that we would prefer a particular trait. I mean, if you think about it, that's an evolutionary smart thing for a group right. to do. There's a lot of anxiety. We're not sure if we're going to survive. We're not sure what we need to do. I want somebody who sounds like they know exactly what they want to do. Good. That makes me feel better. Whether they do or not, is that's the preference. Okay. That's so, exactly right. It's exactly right. You know, we, and, and, you know, we're not in those past days of warring tribes. <laughs> but that, it's going to take a long time for us, for, for that mentality to actually leave us in that instance. And, and what's really interesting, I think, is, is how... Often the dominant leaders, dominant personalities, um, will often stoke fear and anxiety to kind of almost create an environment where their dispositionally dominant personality is likely to thrive. So it's kind of interesting how they'll sometimes they'll sometimes engineer anxiety, induce fear, so that they are legitimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no current examples of that one and no comment about it either on that one. But we see a lot of that going around in the world in general. Um, is there a universal, so the eight, the four hard, again, socioeconomic status, competence or expertise, I would say, the dominance we've been talking about and attractiveness, one we rarely mention, but I will come back to in a minute. And then the four soft ones are warmth, vulnerability, trustworthiness, and charisma. Are there any of those that are more universal than the others? Is there something we should strive to be? Yeah. Well, I think it's certainly the case that there's probably a pair or perhaps um, three of these traits that in a kind of workplace or business scenario, we would be um, perhaps especially um, guided and advised to, to concentrate on. And, and those are those uh, aspects of competence, being able to signal your expertise, um, your, your warmth in terms of your connectedness and similarity to others, and certainly your trustworthiness. I think you know, if, if you're a messenger that is largely seen as having that prior of attributes, you know, you've got competence, you've got warmth, you've got trustworthiness, then that's a probably a really good basis and platform from which to work from. Okay. Now, in your experience, can people change their traits or are these sort of, are these experience driven or are they more hardwired personality driven? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think there's a mix of both, Wanda. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in some instances, you know, in socioeconomic position, for example, that might be just good luck. You happen to, you know, land upon that multi-million dollar idea. You, you get famous. You have a, you know, a, a hit record or something, and, and, and you gain notoriety um, because of maybe some good fortune in that, in that instance. But I think there are things we can work on. Competence is, a, is clearly one that we can increase our expertise and our, uh, our value to others. You know, the reason that we listen to competent messengers is that they have instrumental value. They have something that we don't have that we would like. I think what's really important about competence is the way in which we signal our competence. You know, attractiveness, okay. you know, dominance certainly is, a, is a largely a, a kind of inbuilt personality trait. But there are others, you know, we can do things to signal and increase our trustworthiness. Um, You know, we can admit vulnerabilities, which I think sometimes are aspects of our communication that we, you know, probably are less willing um, to to use, but they can be incredibly effective. 
And we've recently okay. learned, Wanda, from you know, local, uh, recent research that you can actually learn to be charismatic. You can you can actually take training to be charismatic. So, I think there's a mix of the across these traits of things that we can do and things that are probably innate. Okay. All right. So I want to come back to this notion of attractiveness because it's an old piece of work that I know, and I'm sure there's been more work recently from that one, that we rarely, rarely talk about. And it's the notion that the more attractive the individual and the taller the individual, male or female, the more likely we are to see them as a leader. So, and I know there have yeah. been a, several historical examples of companies in crisis where the CEO, CEO will say, I cannot be the spokesperson because I don't look like something other people are going to listen to. There are several famous cases about this one. So, why do you think this attractiveness is such a powerful and kind of define what you mean by it? Yeah, I think, and, and I understand and recognize your experience in these matters and, and, and that research and those examples that you actually cite. So when I talk about attractiveness in the context of uh, the messenger's traits, um, attractiveness, what, what someone that's attractive is doing is essentially signaling their mate value. So kind of evolutionary in, in that regard. And, and so therefore, attractive people by definition attract Attention. <laughs> and attention is a key currency. And in fact, I would always regard attention as the currency for influence. You know, you can't really influence someone unless you're, you know, if, unless you've captured their attention. And attractiveness actually does that. And you're exactly right. The, the implications of being born genetically blessed are in the main favorable. Um, you know, attractive children get more attention. Uh, the teachers pay them more attention. They you know, they, as they go through life, they are more likely to get the job. Uh, there's really good evidence from the U.S. that, you know, people that are above average in attractiveness typically earn more, sometimes between 10 and 15% more over the course of a lifetime's earning than an average-looking peer. So there's all these advantages in this context of being born attractive. Of course, the challenge is where it starts to create those inequalities. You know, we... I'm aware of a recent piece of research that shows that, um, you know, Italian researchers sent out 11,000 uh, resumes to genuine jobs. And in some instances, they simply clipped a picture of an attractive individual to that resume and counted the number of callbacks that those people got for interviews. And they were much, much more likely to get a callback for an interview simply because they had an attractive picture or photograph attached to the CV, much more than those people that either didn't clip a photo to the CV or sent one and they were less than average looking. And so you know, instantly there's an example of how someone is being judged by their attractiveness, not necessarily by their competence or the quality of the attributes they have on their resume. So it's a really important trait. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's difficult to kind of de-bias ourselves against. Yeah, and I know people have all sorts of reactions of not liking that because it moves us away from the sense of meritocracy, meaning get it because you deserve it. But if ever there's been an argument for at least getting an airbrushed professional photo to go with your resume when you're applying for a job, that one is it. At least it gets you the attention past the first screening. Maybe it doesn't get you the job, but at least it gets you attention. All right, so how do I know which of these traits 
are going to work best in the situation that I'm in. So let's say we're in a general meeting. Let's say it's not a crisis, so I don't need necessarily dominance, as we already talked about. How do I know which of these traits are going to be the most effective messenger? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and Well, let's take a business meeting because I think these are situations where these messenger traits are, are underestimated. And, and sometimes how powerfully we can just make one small change or alteration um, at the beginning of a meeting completely changes the dynamics of the meetings, mostly for you know, productive reasons. So I think one of them is this idea about competence. Um, you know, those situations that we go into often where we might be in a room and there's 10 or 12 people around a board table and someone starts the meeting invariably, if it's a group of strangers or people that don't work together that often, by saying, well, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves, shall we? And if you think about it, that's a terrible way to start a meeting because most of us, not necessarily all of us, but most of us feel probably a little uncomfortable about, you know, essentially blowing our own trumpet, you know, tooting our own horn, telling strangers why, A, we're in the meeting and, and, the, and our expertise and the reason why we're sitting in the room. It's, it's, it's not usual for people to say, well, I'm Steve and I'm this, that and the other and here are all my credentials and here's why you should listen to me. That's, that's likely to build a wall between you and the other people in the meeting. And so invariably what happens is, you know, everybody goes around the room in that kind of one after the other kind of way and just introduces themselves with information that can be reliably recorded on a business card. You know, hi, I'm Steve from IT, and you don't get any more meaningful information than that. So that strikes me as a particularly poor way to start a meeting. There's another reason why it's a poor way to start a meeting, and that's that no one's really listening anyway because all of us, the moment we think that we have to, you know, kind of say something in public, we become introverted and we start to think, oh, what am I going to say about myself? You know, what about all these other people that are going to say these wonderful things? What do I say? So we're not really listening to what's going on anyway. So I think the lesson here is a leadership one. Whoever is in charge of the meetings, sponsoring the meeting, responsible for the outcomes of the meetings, should really go around and actually introduce the expertise of everyone that's in the room. Um, and thereby, you know, you neatly dodge that difficulty of tooting your own horn and talking about your own accomplishments. But the other thing it does wonder, which is really interesting, and I've shown this in research, is if we introduce our staff, our team members in these ways that highlight their expertise, their credentials, we're giving them kind of labels and standards to live up to. And invariably they do. You know, they, they feel legitimate. They feel empowered. They feel that they can speak up. Um, so there's one, I think, really important and an immediate step that we can actually take in, in, the, in the context of meetings is to make sure that people are legitimately and properly introduced. Right. I have seen this play out in very powerful ways, particularly when a senior leader is introducing a younger person who's going to take a lead yeah. role in something, a client activity or a project activity or whatever. And the ways in which the senior leader introduces the younger person <clears throat> seems to make an astronomical difference in how well that person is accepted. 
So things like, I want to introduce you to this person, and yes, you might think that he's a little bit younger, but let me tell you why we want to listen to him and what his expertise is or her expertise, and this is why they're good and has my full confidence, and we kind of fill in not just competence, but some of these other things like, you know, a bit of dominance in that one as well. Um that it makes a huge difference in that person's success at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely. And you've picked up on something there that's really, really important, Wanda, which is, you know, we've talked so far about these eight traits kind of in a separate, detached kind of way. You know, we see competence, we see dominance, we see attractiveness. But you're exactly right. When we see one of these traits, it's very easy then to assume that that particular person has all sorts of other traits as well. Well, if, if this person is being introduced by a senior manager, they may be young, but they seem experienced now. And if they're experienced and competent, they may be trustworthy as well. They, you know, so we make all these associations. This halo effect can start to trigger uh, audiences' perceptions of other things as well. It, it, you're exactly right. It's, it's an incredibly important thing to do. One of the most important things that leaders, I think, can do and managers is to, yeah, position their staff and their team's expertise um, so that others around them can be confident about them as well and, and, and get that boost in terms of their productivity as well. There's all sorts of wins when we do this. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that work in incredibly powerful ways. Okay, Steve, we're at a point where we need to take a break. So my guest today is Steve Martin. The book I highly recommend is called Messengers, Who We Listen to, Who We Don't, and Why. And what we've been talking about are the traits of messengers that get them, get others to listen to them. And the traits, again, are four hard ones, which are signaling status or demanding attention, socioeconomic, competence, dominance, and attractiveness, and four softer ones that are signaling the get-along connectedness. Those are warmth, vulnerability, trustworthiness, and charisma. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how we use these in all situations of influence and a bit about how we can develop some more of these. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are, at home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Steve Martin. Steve has been featured in every imaginable public place you can can believe on radio and TV and magazines and so on. So New York Times, BBC TV and Radio, Washington Post, Financial Times, Time Magazine, Harvard Business Review, and I'm certain that that's not the full list. He's also a visiting professor at Columbia University and a guest lecturer at London School of Economics, London Business School, and Harvard. He's the CEO of Influence at Work UK. And most importantly, he's the co-author of a book entitled Messengers, Who We Listen to, Who We Don't, and Why. He's also co-author of a very big seller called Yes, 50 Secrets from the Science of Persuasion. Today, we're talking about messengers, and the core concept is there are traits of people delivering a message that we listen to and pay more attention to at times. Some traits matter more at one time than in another time. And therefore, if I want to get my ideas heard, what I need to understand is what trait is most effective in this moment and who or how do I deliver or show that particular trait. And it might mean I do it and it might mean somebody else does it. We've been talking about the eight traits. And I should say that you can go to the following website and do a little test to identify your top two traits. And that's at www.messengersthebook.com. And there's a click there or you can do hashtag or slash, excuse me, what dash type dash of dash messenger dash r dash u. But if you go to messengersthebook.com, you'll see that click at the top of the screen. I have to say, Steve, I did it the other day just out of curiosity. And I'm pleased to know that okay. maybe my traits are not that bad. But let's not talk about me. I want to talk about a completely <laughs> different. We can come back to that one, maybe. A completely different topic, not different, related, very related topic. Every time I talk with groups about influence, I always get this comment of, isn't that manipulative? And there's a visceral relax- reaction to this notion that I should intentionally think about how to be more effective at influence, largely because people feel that it's then not pure meritocracy, and that's somehow not right. So what's your response to those people? Yeah, I, I I get this question a lot as well. When when we talk about influence, both in kind of training programs at university as well, and and just generally around the dinner table, um, and I think it is the case that most of us would like to think that you know it is a meritocracy and that people you know weigh up the pros and cons of our skills, our attributes, and 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 take us seriously in that regard. But the challenge, of course, with that notion is that we live in a world now that's just so overwhelming, so saturated with stimulus and buys for our attention, that we really just don't have the time and certainly we don't have the cognitive bandwidth, you know, kind of the, the mind space to be able to look at everything that's actually going on, you know, to, to reflect, to 
properly computate, should I be listening to this person and, or should I not? And so what we do is we use these shortcuts, these kind of mental rules of thumb. That's essentially what these eight messenger traits are in a way. They are, they are signals that communicate to us, Wanda, is this person worth listening to? Um, and, you know, so as a result, it, it's not a meritocracy society in that instant. You know, uh, often, you know, looking and sounding right will often be more likely to get you heard than actually being right. And that's the really fascinating thing and, and perhaps arguably a, a kind of unnerving aspect of this particular book is that at no point do Joe and I ever consider what's being said. You know, we're not saying, you know, improve your ability to influence by saying it this way rather than this way. Because in, in, in this increasingly information overloaded world, it seems to us that often what's being said becomes an irrelevance. You know, look at, you know, how certain messengers are able to make certain claims that are clearly false. You know, look at the explosion of fake news. All these are examples of how, you know, it's not the quality and the content of what's being said that we're paying attention to and weighing up. It's often just one of these, you know, mental shortcuts that kind of leads us to pay attention and accept what's being said. And yeah, I, I, I recognize and fully appreciate the ethical um, and the societal impacts and implications of that. It reminds me, your comments there remind me of um, Sandy Pentland's research, um, Honest Signals, where Sandy claims and can show that he can predict the outcome of a salary negotiation without ever hearing the words that are exchanged by just looking at the signals, the body signals, if you will, that go between two human beings. And that's a whole interesting story in and of itself, but it just underpins how much else matters more than the exact words that are being said. Now, that said, sometimes we have words that get us in deep, deep trouble, too, So, um, and words are part of the yeah. signals. It's, it is well, you're exactly right about that. Yeah, go ahead. It, it, it's absolutely... It's absolutely fascinating, and and, and interestingly, it, it's not just Sandy and his research in, in wage negotiations. We find it with teachers. You know, we can show videos of teachers in their classes to uh, strangers um, and get them to watch the video without any sound. And they make inferences about the quality of the teacher, their success at teaching, and the likely ratings they're going to get from their students. And they bear a remarkable similarity to the actual ratings the students themselves give them at the end of a semester. Yet these people aren't looking at them for months at a time like a student is. They're, they're looking at no more than like 30 or 40 seconds of a video. Same with TED Talks. You know, we can, we can show videos of TED Talks. Sometimes we don't even have to show the video or the sound. Uh, you know, I, I've seen research that shows that if you can just kind of create like a straw man animation of that presenter, people are able to predict how successful, how charismatic, how popular that TED Talk is going to be just by looking at those movements. It's, it's fascinating all these signals that are communicating to us the merits of whether someone should be listened to or not. Okay, now I need to go and dig out that research. Clearly, that is an important component to pay attention to. What is it that makes your TED Talk popular? I don't want to get divulgent on that one. I want to go back to something that you said all along the way. You've talked to us several times about signal. How do you signal competence? How do you signal socioeconomic status? How do you signal vulnerability or warmth? Do you have any advice about some of the best ways to signal those? 
I do, yes. Um, and let's focus, I think, importantly, in the context of this ethical discussion that we've been having on the things mm-hmm. that we can legitimately and honestly do. Um, because I certainly don't want to be giving a message that you should, you know, feign or fake your fame or your position in society. But there are certain things that we can actually do honestly and legitimately that raises the likelihood that our message will be heard because we've essentially triggered one of these messenger traits. Um, And one of them, let's talk about warmth, this idea that oftentimes, um, you know, we'll listen to people that we see as similar to us who, you know, signal their benevolence rather than their expertise or how rich and famous they are. And I think there are certain things that we can actually do there to, to, you know, essentially raise the likelihood that people see us as warm and and similar. And and one thing is to just exchange in early stages, you know, information about ourselves, you know, um, talk a little bit about, you know, the similarities that we actually share, particularly we find we are especially likely to listen to those people who don't just share a commonality with us, but share an uncommon commonality with us. You know, not just the fact that, you know, we're the same age or got kids of a similar age, but something a little bit more nuanced, you know, that we not only went to the same school together, but we, you know, both had the the, the same subject that was our favorite subject, or we, you know, did the the same major at university or, you know, these kind of things. Um, So I think there's things that we can do there that legitimately bring to the surface the fact that we we have warmth. Vulnerability is another one as well. I think, you know, we talked earlier about how, you know, these signals of strength and dominance uh, are sometimes useful platforms in order for us to be heard. But the same is true with vulnerability. Sometimes, you know, a good way to get heard is to be willing to kind of trust our audience and expose you know, some sort of weakness that we have or some sort of need that we actually have. It's certainly the case, you know, my, my, my long-term colleague, and you know, as I spoke about Robert Cialdini at the beginning of the program, uh, has done extensive research that finds that people view your message and view you as a communicator as more credible and trustworthy if you mention a drawback or a weakness about a case or a proposition you're making at the very start of a proposal or a presentation. You don't kind of squirrel it away at the end or try and seek to kind of sweep weaknesses under the carpet. You know, you know, pointing out that there's a downside to your your proposition, albeit a small one, before mentioning the upsides. So expressing that vulnerability and that weakness can also be an incredibly powerful way in which you can kind of leverage your messenger status. So I think there are absolutely practical and importantly, ethical and and effective things that we can actually do on that. Okay, so we're now not talking about manufacturing a vulnerability or manufacturing an uncommon commonality. I think that's called being a con artist. But let's take this case of their of vulnerability. And can you give me an example of what that looks like at the beginning of a presentation where I would admit a weakness at the start when I'm trying to persuade people to buy in? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, an obvious one in a business context is, you know, invariably, you know, people are going to want to talk about the price of your product or your service. And, you know, you may not necessarily be the cheapest on the market. You may actually be a premium price. I don't see anything wrong in actually signaling that up front and actually saying, well, look, you know, I, I'm great pleasure to present to you today. I'm very 
pleased to have the opportunity to, to present this idea or present this proposal. Um, I think it's important to state and be honest up front that, you know, we're perhaps not the cheapest company out there, um, but there's a reason why. And the reason is for this, for that, for the other. And by bringing that weakness, that vulnerability up front, you're not necessarily going to be attacked on it later um, because you've, it's almost like you've immunized, you know, your audience against that particular comeback or objection in that instance. You've, you've kind of framed it on your terms, um, but you've been willing enough to kind of open yourself up and say, look, you know, th- there are some things I can't provide for you. Um, uh, th- but the same is also true in our personal lives as well. So it's, it's not just a business situation. You know, there's, you know, when we direct attention to, you know, a need that we actually have, um, one of the things that, we, that, that happens as a result of communicating that need is we're kind of expressing a personal weakness. Um, we're kind of opening our hearts up. And, and most people, most audiences won't exploit that situation. What they'll do is they'll feel a connectedness to us. They'll lean into us. They'll, they'll, they'll want to do the human thing and help. So it's not just a business thing. I think sometimes, you know, you know embracing a vulnerability can be an incredibly actually counterintuitively, if you think about it, quite a strong thing to do to kind of convey those weaknesses that we feel. It's a, it's a pretty brave, courageous thing to do. And um, yeah, so there's a couple of examples of, of how we can use that. All right. So I have two reactions to that. One of them is particularly if I start with a weakness in the proposition that I'm about to put forward, like the price. That one should be, I would guess, most effective if I know the audience is already sort of thinking that. So in a bit, I'm disarming it. If they're already coming in wondering, ooh, I wonder how this is going to be price-wise, then saying that up front should be more useful. Is that true? I think that is true, yes. If, if you have that insight that, um, you know, that, 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 that kind of, you know, kind of inkling that you're probably going to be in a situation where you're going to be questioned or challenged on that, if you know that in advance, I think that's a sign that you would be especially uh, well advised to kind of bring it up front into your propositions, in your presentations. I think that's a good insight, Wanda. I would agree with that, definitely. Okay. All right. And then the second one is, I can tell you how many times I've seen leaders stand up in front of a group and say, I need your help. I can't do this without you. But it's somehow, and that's a weakness, that's a vulnerability, the words are there, but somehow it just falls on like, yeah, I bet you do, kind of cynicism as opposed to a real willingness to lean in. What's going wrong there? Well, I think one of the things there is that the fact that you're asking an audience and a group for help kind of disconnects that meaningful individual connection. I think it's a different proposition, Wonder. If I, if I come to you, for example, and say, you know, Wonder, I, I, I'd like to kind of, you know, essentially talk to you a little bit about, you know, a challenge that I've actually got here. Um, it's kind of, you know, and, and, and I would really value your, your help, your advice on this. I think that individual connection between you and I is a different context than if I'm a leader and I'm speaking or broadcasting to, you know, many hundreds or even perhaps thousands of people in that instance. Because 
you know, whose help exactly are you looking for? <laughs> you know, um, you know, we, you, get, you get that, you know, kind of pluralistic ignorant aspect that works as well. Everyone else is going, well, are you going to help him or is it going to be me or is it going to be you? And, you know, I can see how that falls flat. So I, I think there's a disconnectedness there just given the size of the audience at that instance. Mm-hmm. You know, That's Benjamin important. Franklin, who, you know, mastered this, this technique. In fact, I, I know some people that actually call it the Franklin technique, you know, would give advice and actually say, you know, I, I would single out an individual that I needed to connect with, that I needed to kind of influence, that I needed some, you know, you know, interaction with. And, and you know, my, often my opening line would be to say, I, I would really appreciate your help or advice about something. Um, and it's that individual connection I think is making the difference there. Yeah, yeah. There are various famous uh, quotations from him on that one. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, are there, I realize that I'm sort of running short on time, are there times when we should avoid a particular messenger trait? Or is there nothing Sorry, specific I just about that. that? Yeah, I've got, a click, I've got a click there. Sorry, I missed that last question, please. Are again. there times, Sorry. are there occasions or circumstances where we should avoid a particular messenger trait? Is there one you know doesn't work in a particular circumstance? Or is it all depending? Well, let me answer that. That's a really interesting question. And, and let me answer it in, in a slightly different way, if I may, and, and talk about briefly the, the conflict between certain messenger traits. Are there circumstances where we're more likely to listen to, say, an expert compared to someone that's kind of a non-expert but kind of close and warm to us? And it turns out it's a fascinating study that actually Joe, my co-author, along with a couple of other researchers, including a couple of members of my team now, actually conducted. Uh, and it speaks to a, a broader challenge that's going on in society at the moment. So here's what they did. They, they gave people a simple quiz. They, they, they showed them a shape on a screen and they said, is this a BLAP? B-L-A-P-P. Um, it's a made up word. It, it doesn't you know, mean anything. And this shape is, you know, an odd looking shape. So people are basically given an opportunity to answer yes or no. It's, it's like a coin flip wonder. But no one knows yeah. the answer. And if they get it right, they, you know, they say they win a dollar. If they get it wrong, say they lose a dollar. And that's it. It's a, it's a coin flip. But then what they do is they start to introduce other people into the game. And some of these people are actually pretty good at predicting and getting the answer right. Um, so you'd like, they're experts, basically. And so the question is, you know, do people, before they answer, stop, look outside themselves to what the experts are doing, and follow the experts? And the answer is, yes, they do, which is good news because we want to follow experts. We want to follow science. We want to follow those people that have instrumental value and know what they're talking about. Here's the fascinating thing about this study. What they then did is they started to introduce information about these experts that made them dissimilar to the people playing the game. So now they have this conflict. They can follow an expert that gets the answer right 80% of the time. And as a consequence, they can be right 80% of the time. But they also find out that this expert is dissimilar to them. Um, and typically, that dissimilarity will be a political one. They may be voted differently to you. They have a, a different set of values in terms of you know, what they support for a society and what they don't. And the question is, who do they follow then? Do they follow the expert that's objectively right? Or do they follow the warm, similar, connected person to them that's clearly not right? And in over 60% of cases... They follow the latter, not the former. They pay to be wrong so that they can follow 
the individuals that they are most closely connected with, not necessarily the expert. And that, I think, is a fascinating context for thinking about how these eight messenger traits, how they conflict often. Yes, we'd like to follow an expert, and ideally we want to follow the expert that's similar to us. But when that conflict is in place, a lot of the times we're more inclined to do the wrong thing so we follow a similar person than actually follow the expert. And you can start to see how that's playing out in all sorts of situations, silos in organizations, partisanship in society. That to me is fascinating how these these traits conflict with each other and are competing for our attention and, and how our behavior is influenced subsequently as a result. So I certainly see this in a host of cases where a researcher says to the senior management team, what you're about to do with this product or service is going to be a disaster because it's based on inaccurate science. The researcher is not like the senior executive team, almost any of the traits that you would identify because they come from a very different place. And the senior management team ignores the researcher to the ultimate damage to the company. Like that's an example that we see play out over and over and over and over again. But to know that 60% of the time people in experiments are willing to pay to follow somebody who seems like them is really important. My second comment on this one is particularly in my own work where I talk about expert leaders And often the expert leaders are people who are not like the dominant coalition, meaning they're a little bit different and they've learned to lean on the expertise more strongly than almost anything else. And that just says everything we need to say about why broadening that perspective of not just expertise, not to give it up, but have more than that is going to be so critical to having influence. Wow. That is mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> okay. Um, before we close, Steve, I want to try a new thing on this podcast, which is since the title is called Out of the Comfort Zone, I thought I'd ask you about a time you've taken yourself out of the comfort zone, and you've got two minutes to give me the answer. You know, what made it successful for you, getting out of your comfort zone? Well, yeah, well, I've got two examples, and one I've already you know, briefly spoken about at the beginning, which was, you know, there was me in a you know, largely safe corporate position 20 years ago. And, you know, it kind of took a little bit of courage to, you know, kind of reach out to a world-leading expert and say, hey, would you be even interested in taking a call from me, let alone me subsequently coming over and, you know, working with you in your university and subsequently becoming, um, uh, you know, an incredible mentor and also, you know, a, a friend over these last 20 years. So, so that was one thing, but it actually led to the second example I'm actually going to give, which is um, nine years ago. So today is the ninth anniversary of the first date that my wife and I went on. And that for me was a moment stepping out of my comfort zone because she was actually uh, a customer. <laughs> she she uh, worked for a speaker's agency, and I uh, was recruited by this speaker agency to give to give a talk in London. And I met her at this talk, and we seemed to kind of get on. And uh, then they invited me to go give another talk. A few weeks later, I met her again. And I was just, you know, I, I needed to be a little bit vulnerable and say, look, I know this is kind of a bit odd that you're kind of like you're employing me you've given me a job I'm a I'm your contractor basically and 
I'd really kind of like to take you out. <laughs> and so that was a big out of the comfort zone me, uh, situation for me. Um, but fortunately, you know, she did say yes. And out. as I said, um, today is the ninth anniversary of that first date. And interestingly, those two opportunities actually collided because when we actually got married in California a few years ago, uh, Cialdini and his wife and their families actually came as well. So um, the whole families came together. So those are my two examples. I think we all have them. And I think that you remind me of the Nike expression of just do it. Like you just have to get out there and get, do it. All right. My guest today, Steve Martin, the book that we've been talking about is Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. If you'd like to know which of the traits you most likely lean on, please go to Steve's website at messengersthebook.com and look for the test at the top called What Type of Messenger Are You? Steve, thanks for being a guest today. Fabulous conversation. Lovely to speak with you, Wanda. Thank you so much. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 